Book One, Chapter Eleven of Arachne. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anna Simão. Arachne by George Ebers. Translated by Mary J. Safford. Book One, Chapter Eleven. While Hannah was discussing these considerations, he rode the boat past the landing place from which the garden, with the Alexandrian stand, could be seen. The third hour after midnight had begun. Smoking flames were still rising from pitch pans and blazing torches, and long rows of lanterns also illuminated the broad space. It was as light as day in the vicinity of the tent, and beamed huntsmen and traders were moving to and fro among the slaves and attendants as though it was market time. Your father, too, Hannah remarks, in his awkward fashion, will scarcely make life hard for us. We shall probably find him in Pontus. He is getting a cargo of wood for Egypt there. We have had dealings with him a long time. He thought highly of Abos, and I, too, have already been useful to him. There were handsome young fellows on the Pontine coast, and we captured them. At peril of our lives, we took them to the mart. He may even risk it in Alexandria. So the old man makes over to him a large number of these youths, and often a girl into the bargain, and he does it far too cheaply. One might invite him to profit, if it were not your father. When you are once my wife, I'll make a special contract with him about the slaves. And, besides, since the last great capture, in which the old man allowed me a share of my own, I, too, need not complain of poverty. I shall be ready for the dowry. Do you want to know what you are worth to me? But Lesha's attention was attracted by other things, and even after Hanno, with proud conceit, repeated his momentous question, he waited in vain for a reply. Then he perceived that the girl was gazing at brilliantly lighted square as if spellbound, and now he himself saw before the tent a shed with a canopied roof, and beneath it cushioned cautious, on which several Greeks, men and women, were half sitting, half flying, watching with eager attention the spectacle which a slender young Hellenic woman was presenting to them. The tall man with magnificent black beard, who seemed farly devouring her with his eyes, must be the sculptor whom Letcha commanded him to capture. To the rude pirate, the Greek girl, who in a light half-transparent bombish robe was exhibiting herself to the eyes of the man upon a pedestal draped with cloths, seemed bold and shameless. Behind her stood two female attendants, holding soft white garments ready, and a handsome pontine boy with black, waving locks, who gazed up at her, waiting for her signs. Nearer, Letcha ordered the pirate, in a stifled voice, and he rode the boat noiselessly under the shadow of a willow on the bank. But Skiff had scarcely been brought to a stop there when an elderly matron, who shared the couch of an old Macedonian man of a distinguished, soldierly appearance, called the name Niobe. The Ellen on the pedestal took a cloth from the hand of one of the female attendants, and beckoned to the boy, who obediently drew through his girdle the short blue chiton which hung only to his knees, and sprang up on the platform. There the Greek girl manipulated in some way the red dresses piled high up on her head, and confined above the brow by a costly gold diadem, flung the white linen fabric 
which the young slave handed to her over her head, wound her arm around shoulders to the raven-locked boy, and drew him toward her with passionate tenderness. At the same time, she raised the end of the linen drapery with her left hand, spreading it over him like a protecting canopy. The mobile features, which had just smiled so radiantly, expressed mortal terror, and the pirate, to whom even the name Niobe was unfamiliar, looked around him for the terrible danger threatening the innocent child, from which the woman on the pedestal was protecting it with loving devotion. The mortal terror of a mother wrought by a higher power of her child could scarcely be more vividly depicted, and yet haughty defiance hovered around her slightly pouting lips. The uplifted hand seemed not only anxiously to defend, but also to defy an invisible foe with powerless anger. The pirate's eyes rested on this spectacle as if spellbound, and the man who, in Pontus, had dragged hundreds of young creatures, boys and girls, on his ship to sell them into slavery, never thinking of the tears which he thereby caused in huts and mansions, clinched his rough hand to attack the base wretch who was robbing the poor mother of her lovely darling. But just as Hannah was rising to look around him for the invisible evildoer, the loud shouts of many voices startled him. He glanced toward the pedestal. But now, instead of the hapless mother, he found there the bold woman whom he had previously seen, as radiant as if some great piece of good fortune had befallen her, bowing and waving her hand to the other Greeks, who were thanking her with loud applause. The sorely threatened boy, bowing merrily, sprang to the ground. But Hanno put his hand on Letcha's arm, and in great perplexity whispered, What did that mean? Hush, said the girl softly, stretching her slender neck toward the illuminated square, for the performance had remained standing up on the pedestal. And Chrysilla, Daphne's companion, sat erect on her couch, exclaiming, If it is agreeable to you, beautiful Althea, show us Nike crowning the victor. Even the Biomed's keen ear could not catch the reply, and the purport of the rapid conversation which followed. But she guessed the point in question, when the young men, who were present, rose hastily, rushed toward the pedestal, loosened the reds from their heads, and offered them to the Greek girl, whom Chrysilla had just called Beautiful Althea. Four Hellenic officers, in strong military force under Philippus, the commandant of the Key of Egypt, as Pelusium was justly called, had accompanied the old Macedonian general to visit his friend, Archia's daughter, at Tennis. But Althea rejected their garlands with an explanation which seemed to satisfy them. Lecce could not hear what she said, but when only Hermon and Mortillus still stood with their wreaths of flowers opposite the beautiful Althea, and she glanced hesitantly from one to the other, as if she found the choice difficult and then drew from her finger a sparkling ring, the bayonet detected the swift look of understanding which Hermann exchanged with her. The girl's heart began to throb faster, and, with the keen premonition of a jealous soul, she recognized in Althea her rival and foe. Now there was no doubt about it. Now, as the actress, skilled in every will, he in the hand holding the ring, as well as the other empty one, behind her back, 
she would know how to manage so that she could use the garland which Herman handed her. Leitch's foreboding was instantly fulfilled, for when Althea held out her little tightly clenched fist to the artist and asked Myrtilus to choose, the hand to which he pointed and she then opened was empty, and she took from the other the ring, which displayed with well-feigned regret to spectators. Then Hermann knelt before her, and, as he offered Althea his wrath, his dark eyes gazed so urgently into the blue ones of the red-haired Greek-like Queen Arsinoe, she was of Thracian descent, that Letcha was now positively certain she knew for whose sake her lover had so basely betrayed her. How she hated this bold woman! Yet she was forced to keep quiet, and pressed her lips tightly together, as Althea seized the white sheet and with marvellous celerity wound it about her until it fell in exquisite folds like a long robe. Surprise, curiosity, and the pleasant sense of satisfaction in seeing what seemed to her a shamelessly display which ran from her lover's eyes rendered it easier for Letcha to maintain her composure. Yet she felt the blood throbbing in her temples as Herman remained kneeling before the Elaine, gazing intently into her expressive face. Was it not too narrow wholly to please the man who had known how to praise her own beauty so passionately? Did not the outlines of Althea's figure, which the Bombic's robe only partly concealed, lack roundness even more than her own? And yet, as soon as Althea had transformed the sheet into a robe and held the wrath above him, Herman's gaze rested on hers as though enraptured, while from her bright blue eyes a flood of ardent admiration poured upon the man for whom she held the victor's wrath. This was done with the upper portion of her body bending very far forward. The slender figure was poised on one foot, the other, covered to the ankle with long robe, hovered in the air. Had not the wings which, as Nike, belonged to her been lacking, every one would have been convinced that she was flying, that she had just descended from the heights of Olympus to crown the kneeling victor. Not only her hand, her gaze and her every feature awarded the prize to the man at her feet. There was no doubt that, if Nike herself came to the earth to make the best man happy with noblest of crowns, the spectacle would be a similar one. And Herman, no garlanded victor, could look up to the gracious divinity more joylessly, more completely enthralled by grateful rapture. The applause which now rang out more and more loudly was certainly not undeserved, but it pierced Letcher's soul like a mockery, like the bitterest scorn. Hanno, on the contrary, seemed to consider the scene scarcely worth looking at. Something more powerful was required to stir him. He was particularly averse to all exhibitions. The utmost, which his relatives could induce the quiet, reserved men to do when they ventured into the great seaport was to attend the animal fights and the games of the athletes. He felt thoroughly happy only when at sea, on board of his good ship. His best pleasure was to gaze up at stars on calm nights, guide the helm, and meanwhile dream. Of late, most glad of making the beautiful girl who had seemed to him worthy of his brave brother Abus his own wife. In the secluded monotony of his life, as a scar over memory had exalted Lecce into the most desirable of all women, 
and slaughter Abus into the greatest of heroes. To win the love of this much-praised maiden seemed to Hanno peerless happiness, and young Corsair felt that he was worthy of it, for on the high seas, when a superior foe was to be opposed by force and stratagem, when a ship was to be boarded and death spread over her deck, he had proved himself a man of unflinching courage. His suit had progressed more easily than he expected. His father would rejoice, and his heart exulted at the thought of encountering a serious peril for the girl he loved. His whole existence was a venture of life, and, as he turned to lose, they would not have been too dear a price to him to win Ledgesta. While Althea, as the goddess of victory, held wrath aloft, and loud applause hailed her, Hannah was thinking of the treasures which he had cornered since his father had allowed him a share of the booty and the future. When he had accumulated ten talents of gold, he would give up piracy, like Avos, and carry on his own ships wood and slaves from Pontus to Egypt, and textiles from Tennis, arms, and other manufactured articles from Alexandria to the Pontine cities. In this way Letzus' father had become a rich man, and he would also, not for his own sake, he needed little, but to make life sweet for his wife, surround her with splendor and luxury, and adorn her beautiful person with costly jewels. Many a stolen ornament was already lying in the safe hiding place that even his brother Lobaja did not know. At last shouts died away, and as the stopping of the clattering wheel wakes the miller, so the stillness of the shore roused Hanno from his dream. What was it that Letcher saw there so fascinating that she did not even hear his low call? His father and Lavaja had undoubtedly left his grandmother's house long ago, and were looking for him in vain. Yes, he was right. The old pirate's shrill whistle reached his ear from the owl's nest, and he was accustomed to obedience. So, lightly touching Lechko on the shoulder, he whispered that he must return to the island at once. His father would be rejoiced if she went with him. Tomorrow, she answered in a tone of resolute denial. Then, reminding him once more the meaning of the signals she had promised to give, she waved her hands to him, sprang swiftly past him to the prow of the boat, caught an overhanging bout of the willow on the shore, and, as she had learned during the games of her childhood, swung herself as lightly as a bird into the thicket at the water's edge, which concealed her from every eye. End of Book One, Chapter Eleven Recording by Ana Simão, from Portugal